This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 511 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. 
And to hear even more about 5.11, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. This episode is brought to you by GovX, and as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself, and GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month they're going to sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 392 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Davis Odell. Now, Davis was the lieutenant at Station 5, only two blocks from the Pulse nightclub, and was on shift when the attack began. And as you know, this is the third in a three-part series on those particular attacks. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, overcoming personal struggles, transitioning from one department to the other, and then obviously the series of events that occurred that night and the ripple effect that followed. Before we get to that conversation, as I say, every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating elevates this project, making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these incredibly powerful stories from these men and women that come on the show. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Lieutenant Davis Odell. Enjoy. Well, I want to start by saying thank you for welcoming me to your home. Um, so for people listening that can't see us right here, where are we located right now? We are in um, about three miles from downtown Orlando in the very storied neighborhood of Audubon Park. Uh, it's been here uh, for since the 50s. It supported the Navy base back before there was a Baldwin Park. And uh, it had a lot of retirees, military, that wanted to use the base exchange over there. And so it's a very unique neighborhood for um, for the city of Orlando. Beautiful. How long have you lived here? I've been here since '04. Okay. I thought that I'd move in from the suburbs. I uh, lived out by UCF and... Uh, actually have a voice in voting for my city commissioner and the mayor. So I moved from a bigger house with a two-car garage into this 50s smaller house. And you know what, it's, it's kind of neat living downtown. You can ride your bike wherever you want to go or walk. And Beautiful. 
All right. Well, I'd love to start at the very beginning chronologically. So sure. where were you born? And tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Um, I was born in Cortland, New York. Uh, my parents are from upstate New York. Um, my grandparents retired from that very cold portion of the country, and my dad and mom followed them down here. I think I've lived in uh, Orlando since 1960. But my dad worked for the uh, city of Orlando. And, um, you know, I can remember as a little kid, because he was the superintendent of sanitation and going over to Wood Street Air off of Gore, where all the garbage trucks are and are still there today, being a little kid, you know, in my dad's office over there. And then subsequently getting uh, to the point of working for the city of Orlando and just coming back to that same ground 40, 50 years later. It just blew my mind, man, that I was able to do that. But my both my mom and dad, uh, I was fortunate enough to have them stay together and always had a gallon of milk in the um, – in the refrigerator, uh, and um, I basically grew up most of my life in Pine Hills, and um, it was a really nice bedroom community where a lot of people, uh, their dads worked at Mark Marietta and drove out that two-lane road known as Kirkman, and it was really a, a great place to grow up. Well, so, what have you seen with, because obviously, you know, it's well known now that Pine Hills is... Yeah, one of our less safe areas of Orlando, to put it bluntly. Um, what have you seen? You know, describe what it was like and, you know, what have you seen in your career? Well, you know, um, after I got out of high school, I went to the military and um, my parents moved over to Rosemont, got a condo over there uh, near the golf course. And uh, after I got out of the military, I uh, started going to college uh, Kirkman University, Valencia West Campus, um, on the GI Bill. But I stayed in Pine Hills a little too long. It was transitioning. And um, I wound up uh, visiting a friend of mine at her apartment. And uh, I laid my bicycle down outside. And uh, it rode off by itself. So <laughs> I jumped in the car with her. And we found these two kids riding off on our bicycles. And uh, I chased them into the woods over there on Pine Hills Road. Now, at that time... I was running marathons, so you, as a 16 or a 17 year old, you're gonna out sprint me, but you're not gonna outlast me. Well, one of the kids uh, pulled out a gun. I was following behind him in a fire break, and I figured I was gonna get him caught and punish him, you know. One of them pulled out a gun, and uh, I was standing in a fire break, and he was up on the hill. And I said, hold on, son, all you've done so far is stolen a bicycle. You don't wanna go to prison for killing somebody. Well, he fired once, missed me i dove he fired again he hit me in the leg wow and then i was like man i looked up at him and he looked at me and i said man if he's gonna finish me he's gonna finish me but he took off running and i put some weight on it. i'd been a fireman about uh, six six seven years at that point in time and um i started after him and then i thought to myself what, what are you doing the guy's got a gun you were out you know in your baggies riding your bicycle and then i limped out of the wood line and Ask a kid, this is before cell phones, 1988. I asked a kid, hey, go call 911. Well, who pulls up but Lance on uh, Rescue 42? And uh, I said, Lance, come on, I know which way they went. You know, I'm standing there with blood pumping out of my leg. And <laughs> he's like, no, Davis, uh, we're going to take you over here to Mercy Hospital. But it, to make a long story even longer, um, the kid got captured and by the police, and um, they charged him with... Uh, 
attempted first degree because I told him, hey, don't do it. I stood right there and looked down the gun. But that was at the point in time where it was time for me to go ahead and, you know, start thinking about living somewhere else because or I've amended my following practices significantly. But <laughs> so, yeah, I got a bullet in me from Pine Hills. So, you know, if I talk trash about Pine Hills, I've certainly earned the right. I was going to say, well, I, I remember um, when I was in EMT school, I rode with you guys. And it was a, a Mercy Drive. I remember that that was referred to as No Mercy Drive. So even back then, it had a reputation. And that's where the kids, uh, you know, that's where the two kids lived in one of the complexes over there that stole the bicycles. And, uh, you know, me being naive, me, I'm like, I'm going to catch these kids and get them punished and get them straightened out. Well, they were already little criminals. They'd burglarized a house and stolen a gun. And they were about they were damn bound and determined to finish finish me off but uh, i'd still live over there you know if you know i'd still live over because it was easy to get around town from over on that side of town it was a great place to grow up bedroom community yeah it's it's interesting when you hear so many of these areas like hialeah where i worked as my first fire department was and this isn't you know saying it was a bad area but when I guess it was originally an English settlement, like nearly all, all British settlers there. Okay. And then now it's, you know, 96, 97% Cuban. I know that's a bad thing, but it's just an interesting thing. The way time goes on, you get the shit. Even even Compton, you think of as, you know, African-American from all the, the 80s, you know, hip hop movies. Well, apparently now that's a lot of Hispanics now. I would you know? think it so, would be predominantly Mexican. I wouldn't be surprised at all uh, by that. And, uh, you know, um, it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, uh, growing up in Pine Hills, um, I'm always, when I'm getting off the unit, I'm always talking to the kids. I'm always recruiting, saying, hey, look, think you'd like to be a fireman one day to the kids? You can do it. Look, I got a high school diploma from Maynard Evans. It was an F-rated school before they gave the grades out. But my pitch was always to these kids, especially when I worked on the west side and uh, socioeconomically depressed areas, was, hey, I did it. You can do it. Look at look at me. I did this with a high school diploma, and they could always relate because they'd all heard of Evans High School, you know. And so, I just was I was always on a quest to get a kid to come into the fire service, you know, and be that next kid. And you know what? I've heard back later on in my career a few times that it does have an impact. You, you never know when you're talking to somebody whether they're riding with you, you know, and they're riding to certify to to get their paramedic time in or something from from Valencia and you know one of the guys that's now a lieutenant at Orlando said man I'm here because you know what you wanted to go out and reload one of the preconnects <laughs> that wasn't loaded right on the reserve engine and said hey we, we might wind up pulling and then he has he, he said you included me and told me to hop up there and help me uh, help us load this because he was a fireman in Okoy or something. And he said, man, you gave me a pep talk, and here I wound up in Orlando. You know, that's the kind of stuff you want to hear back later on, not this or that, but, yeah, sometimes you do make a difference. Absolutely. I had a, a friend of mine, Steve O'Michelle. He grew up in Timberscan, you know, that area. I mean, just that just was where I used to work. Torch next, City down there, mm -hmm. 51. Yep. 50-51. Exactly. I mean, the most desperate neighborhood I've ever worked in, hands down. And he... You know, came over from Haiti, ended up in Timberscan, and again that mentor figure. It wasn't a firefighter; it was the I think it was the high school coach originally. Um, but he got into football, but he ended up becoming a fireman, and now is in that same station 
trying to inspire the neighborhood kids of this generation you know so yeah i mean the the mentor figure whether it's in uniform or not like we just have to take the time to actually show other people that we care vitally important to have people of color in a neighborhood of color it's vitally important to have latinos in a hispanic neighborhood uh, number one for communication but number two hey a lot of these kids don't have a positive male role model and you know if you can just say hey i'm gonna Maybe I can make a difference with one or two of them. You know, you know, a lot of them might be going south, but you try. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I think there's a, there's a lot of value in, like people say, like, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in, you know, it doesn't matter what skin color, religion, whatever we are, when we put the gear on, you can tell one of two things. You're a good firefighter or a bad firefighter. That's it. However, I do understand completely that if, you know, if it's a young asian child and he sees an asian firefighter well they can see themselves in that or a female you know whatever it is so i I do see the value from that point of view obviously you want to recruit great men and women of of, you know all backgrounds but yeah i mean i I agree with you if if it's a bunch of white people and you're in you know uh, a place that's all a different race it it may be harder for some of those kids to see themselves in that uniform and uh you know i was in the jones high school homecoming parade uh, over on the west side and uh I truly think I was the only Caucasian in the parade. And the two guys on the front of the engine were both, one was riding up engineer as lieutenant, person of color, and the other fireman was riding up as a driver, person of color. I just remember sitting back there going, man, I get how proud this community is of these guys up in the front of the truck, you know, while we're doing the high school homecoming parade. But, you know, there's moments like that that just, you know, it's just like, man, you get it, you know, you see it, you know, and yeah. you, you wish for more, I guess I'd say. But. Well, I had a funny conversation with, with uh, Maria because she's from Romania. I'm from England. And so we were laughing, saying that it was like being in the movies, being on an American fire engine, you know, obviously working. But yeah, his two immigrants is not thought of immediately because we're, you know, white and English speaking. But absolutely, we had the same experience. Like, you know, when we came to the States and pinned the badge on our chest, it was a proud moment for us, too. I guess you could say that's the American experience, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you can come here and be whatever you want to be. And unfortunately, we live in a divisive world, divisive country. But uh, as long as you truly know that the person on the left and the right of you have your best interest, and perhaps the person outside that's directing you from the command vehicle, you're not worried whether he's Asian, Hispanic, person of color. You just want to know that. He's watching to make sure that you're not getting into something you shouldn't be or directing and leading from that position. And that's one of the things I wrestle with now when, you know, um, there's such a movement to to um, try to, um, you know, I think it demeans somewhat from my friends that have made something of themselves, people of color, to hear, you know, people that are extremely successful say we're oppressed. I, I get it, but in the big picture, it, I, I think it takes something away from my friends and colleagues that we didn't worry about. Hey, maybe a generation or two ago, yes. But I digress, man. I don't want to go down in that hole. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I do, and I think that that's it. I mean, we, we focus on the, on the absolute um, minutia, you know, and, and like I was telling people, like this whole thing, like racism is bad. I think most of us are looking around going, uh, yeah, we knew it. It's 2020. None of, none of my friends around me are, you know, stringing people from trees or any of that stuff. But um, 
I, I've said the same thing in the fire service. You know, whatever your background, whatever your color or creed, you either can or you can't. So yes, of course, there were departments in the country that were racially excluding some candidates. But in this day and age, you know, I think to, to f if, if your philosophy is to fill based on quotas, based on I need this many pigmentation, this many, then you're missing the whole point. What I love, my friend Chris Hickman up in Ocala has got an amazing mentor program where for free, anyone can go and get the gear and learn how to be a firefighter and be prepared for the cool. academy and there are scholarships. And so they're reaching into all these different neighborhoods that maybe wouldn't normally find the opportunity and creating really good candidates and they become really good firefighters and engineers. But that's to me the solution to this, not just trying to, you know, to fill socially an engineer um, to make, uh, you know, reflective, more reflective. You have to have want, you have to have desire as well as, um, you know, the, the fact that you know not everybody's cut out to do this and so whether it's london or chicago or new york or orlando trying to recruit for diversity is always and will be a challenge it always and will be a challenge i don't care when i visited london years ago i was reading one of their magazines and it was all about trying to recruit for more diversity and that was 1999, you know, and so it's no different anywhere else. But you have to have the want and the desire uh, to do it. And, and that's, you know, the city of Orlando has such a reputation with um, um, hiring, you know, they're trying to go for this upper strata of people that come through there. It's not easy to get a job with the city of Orlando. Everybody knows that, you know, when you put that badge on and that patch on, hey, you're city of Orlando. You're known southeast. You're known maybe nationally, but um, you know um, whether or not you're female, Hispanic, Asian, black, white. Everybody had to pass the same test to get there, and so you knew that if you made it on there, you had to have passed every function. And if you didn't, see you in two years. See you in two years. But times are changing. I get it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, I, personally, my my personal opinion, I think the the way we move forward with that is good mentor programs, the same as you were talking about from the rig. You know, trying to inspire the local kids. We 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 empower them and we teach them and we give them the tools to be incredible candidates. But that that's how you fix that problem. And the Explorer programs going gangbusters, and there's no absolute reason why anybody in this day and age right now who goes and gets the training can't get a job barring some, uh, you know, past uh, criminal record or something to that effect that would have knocked you out anyways. But um, I went to a friend's daughter who graduated from uh, standards last year, and there were departments there with tables set up recruiting. I mean, asking you, hey, come come work for us in Polk County. Hey, come work for us in fill-in-the-blank county. And I was like, man, it's a great time to be graduating from standards. Absolutely. You're going to get a job. Central Florida is a great place You're to You're going to get a job. Absolutely. Well, I want to go back to your early childhood just for a moment. Because sure, you'd mentioned that your dad was a, a World War II vet. Yes, he was. In okay. the Navy, in the, in the Pacific. And, um, you know, that kind of, it kind of shaped a lot of my growing up because, you know, um, everybody's dad had served, you know. I was born in 57, so 
you know, I'm right there in that baby boomer stretch from, from World War II, but, um, he was just a sailor on a, you know, on a troop ship, you know, he wasn't like some kind of, uh, you know, big time, you know, battleship combat aircraft carrier. And he was just one of those guys, you know, and I just knew, <laughs> I just knew that it was my responsibility that I, when I turned 18, I was going to serve, you know, I was just like, man, that's my responsibility to this country. Even though the gra- draft had gone away, I knew coming out of high school that I was going to serve my country and, you know, and get, get that four years in. And, um, boy, uh, to be, uh, you know, a kid out of the suburbs of Pine Hills and then get thrown in with all the different cultures and city people and all the race and all the different aspects of getting molded into a military unit – and you can't place a value on that for when it comes to the fire service because you instantly realize when you get in the fire department be based on paramilitary organization, hey, I've done this before. I've seen that guy before. I know who that person is. I know that personality. And, and this guy's champion smoke blower. You know, he's got to <laughs> separate, you know, man, a guy's, I mean, he's, he's world-class smoke blower, you know. that's That's what you learn from the military. That's what I try to tell my son now. Hey, I'm glad you're taking an interest in a fire service at 13, but um, you need to get some life experience before you go in there, whether it's college or military. You know, you got, you got to have some life experience. But it's hard to tell these kids coming out of school right now at 19 or 20 to, to not get into a job that's going to provide them with a payoff at the end. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not some dreaded disease, but you know what I mean, um, that, that actually has, um, you know, dare I say the dirty word pension and that kind of thing. <laughs> well, what, which branch did you go into? I was in the Army. Okay. I was in the Army, and uh, I served with the famed 82nd Airborne Division up at Fort Bragg, and I figured that I wasn't, I wasn't testing myself hard enough, and uh I tested for the Rangers and and wound up in the first Ranger Battalion at, at Fort Stewart and um that's a that's a whole nother bag of uh you know tricks there when you start stepping up into these you know high speed elite units and um it really you know until you've suffered a little bit and really know how much you can push yourself I was a peacetime soldier but until you get out there shivering, hungry, cold, wet, you know, fortunately no one's trying to kill me, but, you know, you, you know, you can think back about those experiences, especially when you're going to fire, fire college, you know, it's just like a military school, you know, lefty loosey, righty tighty, you know, can you break this weapon down and put it back together in X amount of time, which is why I think so many military people excel going into the fire schools. Yeah, absolutely. Well, had you always wanted to go into fire service after? No, I didn't really have a vision. Um, uh, now I'm 22, 23. Uh, I had friends that were had gone into the fire service, and I had friends that had gone into the police department. And they were like, "Hey, Davis, you'd be great. You'd be great at this. Come on and do this." And I go, "Ah, eh, any swinging Richard can be a fireman or a cop. You know, I want to be. You know, I want to be something with a." degree you know and i started going to valencia out there and after a couple of years and i was like all right and i got two years under my belt but man i started looking at these guys man the firemen are off all the time 
and got a pickup truck. They own a house. Some of them own a house at 23 and they got a boat. And I'm like, these guys are living a dream. You know, they're, they're not locked in whatever five days a week going to work. And I said, it looks like it could be an adventure. So I opted to go. Uh, not only was I going to school f- carrying a full semester at Valencia, but I was working full time as a custodian at an ele- elementary school at night and going to fire school two nights a week and all day Saturday. And to think that I hadn't enough on my plate, I joined the National Guard for another hundred bucks a month, which, you know, after you're on active duty, you can take it or leave it. But, you know, a hundred bucks a month in 1980, you know, that was, was some whatever beer money. But so, um, you know what? Uh, I came out of the fire college and my friends who were in Orange County um, were giving me inside information. They just consolidated in 1981. And it was October of 81. And they said, look, we know there's more positions open. DD, you got to get down there. So I went down there and basically kicked the door open in the office. I said, look, man, my application's been in. I'm a veteran. Um, I've got all this stuff going on. And, I've, you know, I've already tested with you guys. Well, why, I, why don't I have a job? I literally demanded a job. <laughs> and there was this little guy in there scrambling with papers at his desk. His name was Fitzgerald, Lieutenant Fitzgerald, which think about this 1981 that cat is now the chief of orange county fire oh, is Rescue. that fitzgerald. that fitzgerald so what a long strange trip it's been for him but more than that i think i startled him so much by going into his office i got to call within a couple of days hey you're starting with this next group and boom i was on my way and those guys that i met are my lifelong friends you know from orange county you know those people that i met and those lieutenants that influenced me for three and a half years down there you know they're giants man because they all came from taft or pine hills or fill in the blank uh, whatever group they came from conway chief franklin one of the most superb uh, human beings that i've ever met in a management position before chief franklin he, he just was the best, you know, and I was lucky to wind up on the trail down there working 50, 51, 53. And best houses in Orange County, in my opinion. I was at 70 for most of it is how, you know, we'd uh, be with John Byrne and we always kind of saw each other at the store. But um, Love yeah. Johnny Burns. So give you a shout out, Johnny. <laughs> well, you talked about following up. I think that's a very important just to, to highlight that for a moment. I remember hearing a story, I think it was Josh Tabor, and there was Valerie Tabor when I was there. And uh, they both had their applications in the same period. And I think it was Josh telling me that um, he'd called and they're like, oh yeah, we've got you. And it turned out it was hers. And so he was completely skipped over like one or two classes. So I think that's an undervalued skill. Like, you know, without being to the point where you're annoying, I'd be aggressive. If you're trying to get a dream job, follow up. I always did with my own fire departments. Like, are we good here? You know, you know, when, when's the next, can you tell me when the next step will be so I can start planning, make sure I'm off? But yeah, if you're not following through in an agency the size of Orange County, you can fall through the cracks really easily. And keep in mind, they just consolidated. So there was a lot of meshing of the gears. You know, everybody had their own little fiefdoms, you know, Dunham's world out there on the east side. And, you know, Pine Hills was big. Pine Castle was big, you know, and you had all the little ones in there, Killarney and everything. So everybody was fighting for their little piece of turf. But ultimately, uh, you know, I landed at Holden Heights and uh, with Gary Davis and Tom Ruffing and uh, Scott Manning and 
several other people that that had really full careers and still still play golf with Ruff, you know, Ruff Dog, and supposed to have lunch with him on Friday. So these guys, you know, they really make an impact, you know, because you're green as grass, and to have a lieutenant like Gary Davis, man, that guy's, you know, he's top, mm-hmm. he's top notch, man, GD. Beautiful. Well, with with you coming from the military, what did OBT look like in the the eighties for a young fireman? Well, you know, it was pretty wild. Um, you know, it was before they have expanded it out and cleaned it up and did the beautification product on it. But you know, um, Holden Heights was rough, Taft was rough, but Pine Castle was still uh, pretty much a milk toast uh, middle, uh, you know class neighborhood you had two golf courses down there that was uh, around um, you know texas down there alhambra and Canongate, i believe was uh, on oak ridge and all those apartment complexes you know um so pine castle you know it, it was it had some money you know and they had the equipment too and going in there and uh, you know um working for bobby casper and and those guys uh I was really fortunate to get in there into a multi-company house to see, you know, an antique from Chicago, Snorkel 51, riding on that Snorkel. And, you know, I think it already had a full career in Chicago and then Pinecastle bought it and they were so proud of that Snorkel and that thing could do so much with an articulating boom that these modern day, uh, you know, straight towers and ladders can't do. But I was really fortunate, man. I got a pretty good across the board i served two years on rescue so there was never a point in my career where i could couldn't say to somebody hey man i've been there man i served my time on the box now we weren't transporting in the early 80s but you know you're on the box man you you know you you, you do wind up transporting and you do wind up running all the calls you know and i had some great partners tom hickman you know who went on to uh, staff the heavy at orange county at one point in time one of one of my partners you know and so just you know I, I just have this i just know thousands of people you know from working at different fire departments yeah it was funny you said about pine castle that you know 70 we we had orange you know the railroad tracks running down so it was the perfect analogy of the wrong side of the tracks you know the what was it the west side not so good the east side you're on those million dollar homes on the lake and it was Absolutely. so so weird i mean you literally travel a quarter of a mile and be in a completely different environment yeah you know and um if you grow up here you hear so many people say boy <clears throat> this place has changed well yeah it has but not everybody's going to retire in tennessee you know the new north carolina not everybody's going to haul butt. You know, for me, I started a family later in life. So, you know, my kids are going to Audubon Park School and will eventually go to Winter Park. And, uh, you know, my wife works for the city because you got to have health insurance for your family when you're a retiree because that's, that's the big killer is the health insurance. So, um, you know, I guess uh, I'll be around here for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, what made you transition from Orange County to Orlando? You know, that's a good question because I ran calls with the, at 50, I ran calls with Rescue 2 and Engine 2, and those guys were older, you know, and they just had that image, um, you know, with the leather helmets, you know, we had the plastic yellow helmets, and they had, they looked traditional firemen, you know, and um, 
I just thought, you know, hey, these guys are getting paid this much more. You know, I think I'm going to try out. I'm going to try out for Orlando because they also had these funny things they wore around their neck and their head when we went on fires with them. And it was, they were Nomex hoods and they'd already been issued Nomex hoods. They're wearing three quarter boots, but they had Nomex hoods with their leather lids. And I just was fascinated by that thing they were wearing on their head until I finally realized within a period of time that hey, it wasn't a bad thing. I know it wasn't, but, um, you know, just like transitioning from going from the 82nd Airborne Division to the Ranger Battalion, um, you know, it's like, hey, you want to try to step up and make that next level of pay and benefits, you know, not not any better, not any braver. No, well. Orlando guys are better looking, but I mean, <laughs> there's, some pretty, there's some pretty firefighters in Orlando. Yeah, they are, but no, um, that's what I always used to bust on them. And I'd tell the young kids in Orlando, hey man, I don't ever want to hear you bad rap uh, our brother department over there because, first of all, I work with those guys. They're my friends. And second of all, they're you're no smarter, braver, or anything else than those guys. And there was many a time when I had to settle these young bucks down that thought, that, you know, they're beating their chest because they had this OFD patch. And I'd be like, no, man, no. I worked I worked at 50 and went to seven. You know, basically all I did was jump off one unit and go to another unit on the same shift. So all of a sudden, now we're eating dinner, inviting Engine 50 to Station 7 for dinner. Station 50 had Engine 7 over for dinner. So there was a new bridge in our relationship for us. And uh, I stood in the uh, ready room down there at 51. And uh, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try out for, for Orlando. And, oh, man, they just all ganged up on me, man. My back was to the wall, I remember. <laughs> and they were all unloading on me, man. Oh, man, you you're, you can't make it, Orlando. They're only looking for this person, this gen, you know, this gender, this race. You're not going to make it. And I said, man, I, I got to try, man. I got to try. And they were ganging up on me. And all of a sudden, Chief Franklin walked out of his office, and his nickname was the Bear, and he's country. And he came out, and like I said, there was eight of them, if not nine of them, all just gangbanging me, you know, about not going to Orlando. And the Chief kind of says, Odell. If I were you and Orlando gives you a job, I'd take it. And he turned around and walked back in his office, shut every one of those sons of guns up. <laughs> one of those classic moments where, you know what? It's interesting, too, because when I, when I, um, let me see how this panned out. Yeah, so when I was in fire school, because I went to Orlando as well, um, my son's mother, my ex, wanted to move to Miami. And so rather than, I couldn't test with you guys because I wasn't a citizen and you had to actually be a citizen. Um, but obviously there were a lot of other departments around that were hiring. Um, but I was like, no, oh, I guess I'm going down to Miami. And all I heard was, oh, you'll never get a job down there unless you're a medic and you speak Spanish. Well, three months later, I was working for Hialeah, the most Hispanic area in the entire South Florida as an English speaking EMT. So, you know, that was the first thing. But then in, in Hialeah, when she wanted to move out west to go to Hollywood and be a famous star, um, which didn't pan out, <clears throat> um, uh, I had the same thing. Oh, you'll never get hired out there. And then sure as shit, I went and moved out there. So that's another big, big thing is we get in our comfort zone. It's so easy for our men and women to say, ah, you'll never insert a thing here. But like you said, what have you got to lose? What's the worst thing that happens? They say, sorry, you didn't get hired. At least you threw your name in the hat. And it's it's believing in yourself. Hey, I, I want to be Airborne Ranger or I want to be 
an Orlando fireman, or we've had people that left Orlando to go to the city of New York, you know, which is the next tier, three tiers above us, mm-hmm. you know, whichever, however you measure seriousness of the job. But uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, that's it's never, you never stop, A, believing in yourself, and secondly, telling people that they have to believe in themselves. Hey, you, you want to come on here? You're going to have to be the best of the best because you're up against all this competition. Okay, maybe you don't have anything going for you. Maybe you're not Native American. Maybe you're not Latino. Whatever you're, whatever you got going for you, you know, if you're an AWB average white boy, you got to be in the very top top percentile of, you know, that's how you have to gear your thinking. That I got to beat all these guys out, every one of them and gals too. You know, so you know, I say that AWB meaning, you know, average white boy meaning, hey man. You got to really, you got to be the top, you got to be the top of the game to, to come in here. You know, you got to score top, top on everything, physical, written, all the tests, you know, and same advice I give to anybody, but you know, the ones that say I can't make it because you guys are only hiring them, which no, 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 we're not just hiring them. Anybody who makes the grade makes it, you know, that's the thing. Yeah, that's a pretty so piss poor excuse. little tread there I was doing on that. <laughs> no, but it's true. I was actually AWCB, average white civilian boy. I didn't even have veterans preference. You know what I mean? So there's that other element. And I agree 100%. When people, you know, ask me about the fire service, I'm like, there are things you could control and the things you can't. So I can't control, because I did actually test with Orlando when I was at Reedy Creek. And in hindsight, um, you know, it wouldn't have, being good but I didn't get picked up regardless I was on the list I didn't get picked up but being a 40 was I 40 year old 40 no it's about three or four years ago now so 42 year old when they're asking oh what have you done for the fire service I'm well I have a podcast and this now and I realize that that's just not that just sounds so weird to them it probably almost sounds like you know hyperinflated ego or whatever it's like would be now or what have you done well I've written a book I've got a podcast so it's a very different answer than you would have had but that was me being honest at that time, at that age, with that amount of experience. Um, but that I can't control. I can't control if those people like me. All I can control is my honesty. What I kept, could control, which I took very seriously, was my written test and my physical test and my EMS skills, even though in that scenario I missed the tube on the dummy and ran out of time. So I wouldn't say I aced that either. But, you know, those are all the things that I can control. And I agree with you completely. Why would you not want to be the best possible candidate you can be and if you just think you're going to breeze your way through then as you mentioned earlier maybe this isn't the right career for you you're right and there are people that just clock in and clock out and they find a comfortable little place in a fire service where they have their small allotment of calls and that's that's fine if if that's that's what you're about you know hold up your end of the bargain even there though but um you know you're looking more at type a personalities and I remember distinctly going through the maze um, with Orlando's hiring process. And I, to this day, I should, by all accounts, still be in that maze. I could not, <laughs> could not find my way out. I was, I ran out of air. And so back then we had the soft supply side mounted regulators, you know, and you unscrew those and I'm telling them, all right, I'm out of air, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm breathing through my coat. I've got my hose in my coat, you know, and, and this, there's a series of tests that are back to back to back for Orlando. And it really, to get lost in the maze, the one thing I didn't do was quit. 
And it's my contention, I'll never know this because it was so many years ago, I think they finally felt sorry for me and lifted a board up and said, this guy, <laughs> he ain't going to quit. He's been out of air. He's still in there. <clears throat> and I don't know if it was timed exercise or just till you completed it, but I got all screwed up in there. But I swear they must have lifted a board to let me out. And when I rolled out of there, they looked at me and they said, man, and I had that Rescue 51 on my helmet from Orange County and they were writing down on their clipboards and I got up and walked away. Now, I nearly died as soon as I got around the side of the building because I was at exhaustion, but just can't quit. You just, you know, it's just, you can't quit. But true little anecdotal story there that. There was a good hiring process. I've got to say, you know, like I said, I didn't, I didn't get hired. However, um, the skills portion was awesome. You know, again, the, the search and the ladder yeah. throws and all those things. And then the EMS scenario was good. It was high stress. Like I said, you know, I I didn't do it flawlessly, so there was huge room for improvement. I don't know what the other tests looked like and if I just, you know, didn't even have the right score to rank properly, but um, it was nice being challenged. I got to say that. It was nice, you know, getting to do skills so you could almost almost show off what you had, you know? So, yeah, it was it was it was the, the kind of test where you could see if you don't train you know, for the physical and the, you know, the written and the, the physical portion. If you don't train, you're, oh, yeah. you're not you, even going to get close. You got to be in the top percentile, and then you got legacy kids coming in, and I'm all about legacy uh, in the fire service or wherever, you know. And it's tough to walk in another person's shoes with that name on your back, but um, you know what? Those kids have to score even better. They have to be. We're not going to drop down to 78 to get somebody's son or you know somebody's daughter. You better be in that top 20 that would have been looked at and assessed over because what do we hire 25 30 off the list maybe 40 some years uh, you know the two-year list maybe 40 so you know it's it's a competitive process it is absolutely well obviously we're going to get to pulse in a moment but um you know we're making a giant jump there so before i do that um in your career uh, in orlando were there any other kind of like significant um you know events that that will be what they call career calls um, you know, you have those career fires, you know, the really big ones. And if you're working on the peripheral or, you know, um, you know, I had some, I had a, an interlude of interrupted service that's pretty well known. And, uh, I had to go and gather myself for a few years. Um, and, um, I went over to Brevard County and worked over there for five years and uh, uh, my story is pretty well known, and I don't need to be public about it, but, um, you know, I had to go. It was the roaring 80s. That's all I'll say about that. And uh, some of us were a little recklessly out of control, and I had to step away from Orlando, straighten out my priorities in life, and then come back and test again and score again well enough to be considered. So I'm kind of a rare bird when it comes to, you know, my career, uh, the little interruption that I had. But what happened was is that you don't go from Orlando to Brevard County. You, know, you just don't. And those guys over there were, uh, to, to this day, um, my steadfast friends and you know, help me work through that period of my life where I was going to decide, hey, what are you going to do here? Are you going to continue this path of, uh, you know, wanton recklessness, uh, you know, in your personal life? 
or are you going to, uh, you know, get yourself straightened out and become the guy you should be? And I had to do that, and I did that in Brevard, and, um, you know, I think seven or eight of them came to my retirement uh, uh, party in Orlando, and I had them stand up and be recognized because, you know, um, I am internally grateful for the fact that uh, the way I was treated throughout my younger days, because I'll be honest, the 80s were uh, really the roaring, you know, my roaring 20s, if you will, and uh, um, I don't need to elaborate on that, but to have to leave and then be able to come back and be accepted and finish out a full career with them, uh, I'm in some rarefied air, so that part of the story, it shouldn't be neglected, but, you know, I'll tell my kids about it one day. <laughs> well, without, again, without detailing the actual reason what were some of the tools you used to be able to get back on track to then start going back i got clean and sober bro there's only one way you can there's only one way that if you are uh, dangerously dabbling in the uh, elements of uh, you know high-powered accelerants and that kind of thing there's only one way to do it and that's uh, bone dry man cold turkey and, uh, you know, I got myself in the best shape of my life and went to smoke divers up in Ocala, which is. Oh, you uh, did? Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm not saying it was a tough school, but uh, we had one guy uh, die there in the class and another guy got transported with a head injury in that same evolution. And, um, you know, um, you can say what you want about smoke divers, but that training will come back to you so many different ways when you're under stress. You know, you have to really be put under a lot of stress to understand, hey, I've had it worse than this. Smoke divers was tougher than this. But that particular class, um, you know, that rocked the fire service there because you don't you, you don't go to a training class and have people die in it. And um, the guy had a cardiac, and um, I think I had uh, – Oh, uh, I guess maybe about eight, nine years in the fire service. And there were some kids there that just came right out of standards and went to smoke divers because they knew the building and were familiar with it. Well, it was tough. And if I hadn't been in the very best shape of my life, my heart would have exploded, too, because it's that strenuous of a school. But when that guy died, you know, those of us knew what was happening, rigged a Stokes basket and had to lower him down off the building uh, from the evolution that we were in and. You know, um, you know, that was that to say that's a tough course is an understatement. But fortunately, they've got it back open and going again. And it's extremely difficult, extremely. I don't, I don't know, even in my best past physical fitness that I would pass it. I wouldn't quit. But these guys that are going through that work for me uh, at Orlando wanted their smoke divers. Some of them went three times, three times. But all that's part of my story. But. Ultimately, you know what? I come back, um, I restart in uh, 93 and uh, did 25 years. And um, boy, you know, uh, I was fortunate to uh, get um, on the special teams, you know, uh, rescue diver, high angle, um, hazmat. You know, you can't escape hazmat if you're downtown at Station One. But. Um, and some guys have made a great career out of it, but, you know, to be able to participate in the special teams and be on tower one, you know, tower one was, was the USAR, the heavy rescue uh, for anywhere, uh, 
it was always dispatched on every second alarm tower one went so at that point in time it was quite an elite unit to be uh, assigned to and i'm extremely proud of that to this day to have uh, gotten that time in on the truck and then you know i promoted rapidly when i came back to orlando <clears throat> i felt i owed him something so i made engineer in uh you know four to five years and made lieutenant in seven years. And that's, you have to hit the timing just right on testing. But here I come back and all of a sudden, you know, uh, by 99, I'm a lieutenant. So for the next, you know, 20 years, I served in a capacity as, as a company officer and did my absolute best to be, um, you know, a cheerleader for a Orlando fire department, be the fire service. You know, I mean, I, I owe the fire service everything. I owe I know I owe the people who treated me with uh, compassion, everything, you know, and so it's never lost on me when my story's told that, you know, there's always a backstory. Absolutely. You know? And I ran hard with a lot of guys and we all know the names. <laughs> Big Tom Hill, you're out there. But Tom no. Bull? Yeah. Ah, yes. Good friend of mine. Big Tom Hill. Yep. <laughs> we were a little wild back in the day, and uh, we lived through it all. And then, you know, um, you know, we can talk about the Pulse from my perspective of it and as a company officer and what my reaction to it was. But it really, uh, Big Tom Hill, what he did from Key West uh, to Tallahassee, he salvaged me at the end of my career and uh, we can talk about that after the pulse but that was uh to to me uh, that was one of the most incredible feats of personal you know commitment and physicality you know i only did 80 or 90 miles with him five or six days but i saw how he had to get ice bathed and I saw the toll that it took, you know, 15, 16, 17 miles a day out there. It's like, man, guy's a giant, man. Yeah. Giant. I mean, it's crazy because it was all, you know, when we lost Shaky or when Shaky was dying, that, that you know, he turned his corner. Not that he was in a bad place before, but his, his kind of altruistic side was really born and he went from zero to 100. Man, did he ever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've got uh, an American or Orlando Fire Department flag over there that, it was given to me and it, it went to Iraq with one of the firemen's sons on a deployment and it went to Afghanistan on a deployment. And then he gave it to me because he retired and that flag marched on Tallahassee on that final day with the uh, big Tom Hill, the bull. And to me, that flag is sacred now, you know, that flag helped change laws and save lives and whatever the cancer law is, in my mind, it, it, it should be named after Tom Hill. And it just wouldn't have happened without him. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't happen. Absolutely. But I can go on a big about Big Tom Hill all day. But uh, he's a giant. He's a giant. He is. He's amazing. Absolutely. I mean, but, yeah. uh, you know what? Uh, yeah, I did have a massacre on my watch. I know it's just like, man, I got this thing hung around my neck, you know, and it's like. Oh, he was the Pulse fireman. Well, you know what? I just happened to be there. I just happened to be the supervisor. But ultimately, in the end, <clears throat> due to the fact of the training and the discipline, 
um, I thought, and I still continue to this day, felt that we, we all who were there, did a good job, a, a great job, you know, considering the circumstances, the unknown, and for me to be, uh, you know, at ground zero while it was happening and listening to it and watching it, you know, I took a lot of beating from the, you know, a lot of people in a different conferences and stuff. I was getting phone calls, man, they're really beating you up at this conference. I said, who? Well, some of your, some of your superiors who weren't even there. And I go, well, tell you what, if you want to know what really happened, have anybody call me because I was the only one that was there to actually witness what was going on. So that's how I handled the criticism. And, you know, as well as I do, the second guest response team is always going to be right. I mean, we uh, we had a chief that was famous for saying, yeah, second guest response team always comes in and, and has it right. You know, but truth is, you make your decisions based on uh, what you have at the time and you live with it, you know, and for a, a goodly number of the people that were there and um you know, I just saw nothing but uh, pure, um, you know, absolute commitment to um, saving lives. Yeah. Whether you were on a transport or whether you were stuffing a, a, a some trauma bandage in a wound or whatever, um, you know, whether you were setting up to do whatever you were doing, you know, it was a collective classic come together of multiple agencies that uh, you know I don't want to sound like I'm glowing about it but I'm extremely proud of my crew for uh, what they did what they went through and, and how they handled it post pulse and uh, some of them some of them went and talked to the people out at UCF and that was a really a good thing for a lot of people in that program out there but ultimately um I got asked about this the other day. You know, I was like, hey, man, it comes up. You know, what about the Pulse? What have what, what you done differently? I go, man, you know, um, it's certainly in, in hindsight something that I could say. But at the time, I erred extremely hard on the side of caution because we hadn't been issued flak jackets and helmets yet. And due to the volume of gunfire, I said, no, we're not going out there until we get the scene secured because it was happening right there and it sounded as if it was literally in the intersection of Kaylee and Orange so I held the guys in check and I took a little bit of a beating uh, from several different uh, you know after action reports that said you know that oh I would have done this or I would have done that well you know what call me and I'll tell you about the volume of gunfire and see if you're going to send your guys out there into the into it and it wasn't but a matter of minutes with seconds behind it before the overwhelming police, you know, secured the scene and we went to work. But you don't want to hear any criticism, you know, from somebody in wherever'sville, Las Vegas, at some convention, you know, that people were pounding on the door for help. Well, that's just not the case, man. It was just not the case because. That was some of the criticism that people were pounding on the fire horse door for, for 
help and it just wasn't the case. Well, let's talk about that because I had Ryan Maria on. Obviously, they they gave their perspective, and and you know I worked, I butted alongside you guys. The so seventy and five were you know were neighbors. Sympatical. Um, and you know, so we passed Pulse every single time we went to and from ORMC. We passed you every time we went to, from um, you know ORMC to back to the station, and you guys are literally a block from Pulse. So you know, I don't think people understand the proximity between the club, the station, and the hospital. So it's you know, it, I'm sure in their minds it's a much broader geographic picture. So kind of lead me through through you know, Engine Five's eyes, you know that that night, and then how it unfolded through your eyes. Because I mean, I think it's important. We need to hear your not not side of the story. That's bullshit. Your first hand account. It. Yeah. You know, I was on a time trade for one of my good colleagues who's since passed away from cancer in a, in a rapid decline of health, and it just was heartbreaking for all of us. But he was at the birth of his grandchild and um, asked me to work for him. And uh, I had worked busy the night before, and one of the chiefs that morning and said, hey, uh, you want to go out to station fill in the blank where it's quieter? I was like, no, I'm comfortable in my own skin here. I don't want to go to somewhere where I don't know the buildings and the territories i said i'm okay i'll stay here at station five and i uttered the classic line to this day was hey station five what could possibly happen (laughs) so that's been my mantra about this whole event it's station five what could possibly happen well it it can happen you know and but uh so uh you know we got a call there about an hour before the shooting somebody was uh, a little shall we say overserved and we were stabilizing him and, you know, right out in front of the club and loading him in uh, one of the boxes and for transport. And, you know, little could we ever imagine what was fixing to transpire. But, you know, obviously this madman was either in his, in his car parked in the parking lot where we it was directly uh, at the uh, station across the street from us in the um, detailing station where his vehicle was. He, he was probably sitting in there at that time. Who knows? But uh so we're just you just never know when you're on a routine call like that, especially man, the club was rocking. Everybody's having a good time. We didn't have problems at the pulse. We didn't have all we had were people that got overserved in various different forms and fashions. Maybe an occasional a really a you know, bitch lap fight kind of thing, but we didn't have you know, one like some biker club, you know, with guns and knives and stuff. So the Pulse was really not on our radar for problems. But I did hold their feet to the fire on exit checks. And um, I told the lieutenants that came in that got assigned there um, prior to the Pulse, hey, man, it took me a long time to get them into compliance with their uh, occupancy and ensuring that every exit was unlocked every time we went over there. And pretty soon they knew I wasn't, you know, fooling around because I was going to go through and make them take me to every exit and ensure that they were unlocked. And then I made them get a counter at the front door. They didn't have a counter, you know, and I was always on their butt when I first got assigned there. But over the years, they got their training and their staff up to speed because I would ask when we'd go on a medical call there, what's your occupancy right now? I'd say that to the front. Oh, they'd scramble and uh, we're at 222. Okay. All right. At least you're, you're acting like you're doing what you're supposed to do. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> um, ultimately. Um, so, you know, yeah, that little, 
those little things you, you kind of miss sometimes when you're out doing your routine uh, building inspections and building surveys and more importantly exit checks exit checks are, are vital in in clubs like that but um you know um i felt that that paid off perhaps that night too uh, with, with the fact that they knew that uh, if we ever came there we're going to look to make sure those exits were unlocked but you know we went back to quarters and i was trying to settle down dispatch came in uh, shooting pulse it was myself in a rural metro unit i still got the printout tear off sheet somewhere and um and i just could hear uh, from the screaming out in the street something went right and you know the heavy volume of fire finally you know focused you know two o'clock in the morning pow pow but you know i was like man that's 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 not just a shooting that's that's shooting so uh i said hold up fellas we we ain't going out there because people were running literally for their lives just the 7-eleven across the street was open so people were running to it you know like it was safe safe haven but it was but so um you know i sheltered the guys and um told them hey man we're not going out there till we we, we get this thing uh figured out and I kind of snooped and pooped around outside there, and then finally an OPD officer got out front with an AR-15. And we're not talking like standing there. We're talking about him with an AR-15 in a absolute combat position to shoot when I went up to the bay door and said, hey, you got us covered. Yeah. I said, you got us covered. Yeah. Then we put the bay door up and went to work. So, um, you know, the 90 the seconds the two or three minutes that i held the guys in there i take responsibility for that but i'm not you know i gotta get those guys home safe the next day too that's my ultimate responsibility so i'll take the hit on not rushing out there in our shirt sleeves into a hail of gunfire but uh, ultimately uh, we went straight to work and uh, the unit started to build and you know meanwhile i'm on the radio telling everybody to stage much further away than we normally would just due to the volume of gunfire because I just didn't know. I just couldn't be sure. And um, once the massive police presence got him cornered up in that building, you know, then things started getting set up. And, um, you know, my guys immediately saved a guy that was shot twice through and through. And um, we drug him into the station and laid him die the engine. And as he was bleeding out, uh, you know how blood spreads out. He had it was probably about a six or eight foot puddle of blood. But we got him transported, and turns out later on the guy lived, and we were all extremely happy that we saved that one guy, the very first guy we started working on. Obviously, a trauma alert, you know, times whatever. But when all the units started channeling in, and things were getting set up, and people were bringing. Um, the mass casualty trailers in Orange County showed up like the Calvary and, um, you know, uh, they brought more resources to bear than we had, you know, just because they're a bigger organization. And I say this to my dying day that, hey, man, they, they had their uh, act together. They had their act together. The, the county had their act together with what they brought and, and how they utilized it. And although in the midst of, you know, of the battle when everything is completely confusion, you know, things started to settle itself out and organize and sectors were established and, you know, and it just went on and, um, 
you know, um, Maria and uh, her partner. What was his first name again? Right. Yeah. You know, they were they were gold. They were gold. I saw them twice transporting and, um, you know, I share that bond with them. But uh, ultimately, uh, one of the firemen's daughters was in the club. And as we were working in the triage section across the street, and we had a number of wounded, um, I saw him standing over there in his uniform. And um, I said, Nino, are you working today too? Because he was on my shift and I was on a different shift. He goes, no. He said, my daughter is in a club. And I stopped whatever I was doing right then with, with everything that was going on. And I looked at him and I said, Ann, she said, she's okay. She's over there with OPD. They've got her. I said, okay, well, you know, that's one of those snapshots that I forgot about until he reminded me later that I had talked to him on the scene. I had asked him right then and there, did your daughter make it basically? And he said, yeah. Um, but, you know, you forget about those little snapshots because there's so much going on. And uh, it's a personal story, too, when you you got people that their children were in that club, you know during a uh, certified massacre it's what it amounted to but you know um i i stand by our actions i stand by uh, the training and i stand by the decisions made at the at the time and uh, you know i'll carry that with me until someone can point out differently that hey did you think maybe you should have done this because i haven't heard that one yet you know you weren't there but when all was said and done and i i tend to go on they were breaking down the scene after they killed this guy and blew the wall. And it was like a movie. Heavy gunfire. We all looked at each other and said, that's it. You know, we knew when, when they took him out, they took him out. And we were like, all right. And then they got the rest of the people out of the bathrooms. And this thing was moving around, you know, it's like over three block, four block period of time because of the explosives. We got moved back here. We got moved over there. And the next morning, when everybody had been released, except for Engine 5, we were down the block around, I think, around 1700, and uh, at least a block away from the station, and the sun's coming up. Now, we're exhausted. We've been up 24 hours and just gone through this thing, and all the other units had gone, and I finally said to my guys, hey, screw this. We're done here. Let's grab our stuff and go, and as you walk back up Orange Avenue, there was cases of medical supplies ripped open and gloves everywhere. And you really could see it as a battleground, you know, even though all the shooting took place in the club because it had moved and morphed. You had all this detrius from, you know, what amounted to, you know, uh, first aid, you know, combat first aid battalion out there. And, um, we walked back to the station and we got back to the station. Hadn't been in the station for, uh, it was probably about seven by then. And we'd been up since two o'clock. The call came in at 2.03. And um, when we got back, I'd forgotten that we had treated that guy initially. And there on the floor was this giant dried puddle of blood. And I was like, all right, hey, uh, one of my firemen, I forget. I said, somebody go get a mop bucket, fill it up with water and some bleach, and let's get this policed up before C-shift comes in, you know. And that was my last directive was is that, hey, let's mop up this giant puddle of blood right next. The engine never moved. 
the engine never moved out of quarters, but where we had laid him next to the uh, cab up there on the right front where the officer was, he had bled out quite severely. And so I'd forgotten about that when we got back. Well, we're not going to turn the station over to the next ship. <laughs> they'll, they'll just be bitching. <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know what they thought when they came in, but somehow they got to us through the through the phalanx of police out there. They got in there and relieved us. And I just was, um, I made a pot of coffee and I was like, man, I said, I'm having a cup of coffee looking out the window. I go, did this, this, this happen? You know, could this, can this be? I've been on hundreds of shootings in 30, 36 years, 37 years hundreds of shootings you know multiple shootings but nothing like that and i was like it was surreal you know and i'm drinking the coffee and the next lieutenant comes in i go hey bobby you know we've we've kind of restocked everything the trauma bag probably needs to be restocked and all that but i said you're good to go and i said i'm i'm gonna get the hell out of here and uh man they went right to work they had you know they had stuff to do uh, that incoming shift they still had stuff to do but uh, you know, the lieutenant that I covered for, for the birth of his grandchild, who's now passed away, I went home and went for a bicycle ride with my kids because I'd promised him being on a double that I'd go for a bike ride with them that Sunday morning. Well, when I got home, you know, it was starting to become aware. And I would texted my wife, whatever happens when the kids get up, don't put on the TV. Don't let them watch TV. Don't. You know, I capped it out in letters. So I came home and we rode bikes and I was dead ass tired, just delirious. And I probably had 25, 30 texts. And I went and laid down. It was probably by that time about 10, 30, 11. And I slept till about five. But I took one call and that was from that lieutenant that I'd covered for. I said, hey, Bri. He goes, man, I'm up here in North Carolina. But I said, yeah, I said, you know what? I said, your guys, they they perform superbly. I said, man, I couldn't ask for a better crew with me uh, that through, for this situation. And he said, well, you know, Didi, and he paid me the highest compliment I got out of this for what it's worth. He said, I'm sorry you had to go through it. But he said, if there would have been anybody else there that I, I would have wanted to be leading my crew, it was you. I said, well, thanks, Brian. You know, now he's passed on due to industrial disease from this job but um, you know that's kind of that's heavy man that's really heavy when he says hey man i'm sorry you had to go through it but i'm glad you were there with my guys and i said i appreciate that but that's about the highest compliment you can get from a colleague isn't it yeah absolutely someone you respect and love there's a lot more of that in there in between that fat and gristle and that story but uh I tend to ramble, but that's that's it. And I can't I can't pay a high enough compliment to the law enforcement, to my colleagues at Orange County and everybody that came and just how it all worked out. And, you know, all of a sudden you're thrust into this national, international spotlight. And whoa, the man, the weeks after it were just, uh, you know, crazy. Well, it was international because I was in Portugal. So I was telling Ryan and Maria this. So. It was my second Jew when I worked alongside you. And then Disney Springs, which was my first Jew when I was actually at my station, was where he went first, the shooter. And they, oh, they, yeah. they have him on film, which there was a, a lesser known fact because it was swept under the carpet. Oh, yeah. But yeah, he was getting ready to shoot up that place. No. Thank God there was enough SO on scene to dissuade him. But um, so I'm in Portugal. That pop star gets shot. 
then the alligator yeah. eats the kid at Disney yes. and then Pulse happens and I'm like you know watching from 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 afar but again I mean all I heard coming back was how well everyone did and listening to Ryan and Maria tell their story and I'll be listening to Raul next week who was the SWAT officer that made entry um we have these beautiful frameworks the start triage you know the safe you know training but um the end of the day that's just that that's a, that's a coat hanger to hang your plan on but the reality is as i hear from the aurora shootings and some of the other guests that i had on fort hood um you know it's still taking all that training and then making the best of it so it's all well and good to say oh it didn't fit in these clean boxes but as you said when you have a mass shooting going on outside your bay door you know it's a different rule of engagement by that point you got to start somewhere and obviously when you've got someone that's been shot twice through and through that's where you're starting immediately we weren't going to go out and start triaging people i mean we had this guy we had to you know he had gotten drugged down from the club and hey you don't just say no nah, i'm sorry we're we're writing this guy off we did save that guy and then we went on from there and it built but you know one of the chiefs in his uh in his experience realized hey man we're going to need the mass casualty trailer and he went to station 17 and picked it up and right then when things were just we were overwhelmed with uh, the initial uh, volume of casualties here comes uh, mike aiken you know district chief pulls up with the mass casualty says hey dd comes running down the sidewalk i got the mass casualty trailer i said i'll pull it up here man we need backboards so you know things like that come into it and and piecemeal into it you know you're supposed to be following this script but in reality what we needed to do were get people strapped to backboards and drag them instead of trying to carry them or pull them you know and doing a fireman carry was to get them on a backboard and stabilize them at least a little bit so we could carry them up the street and get them to uh, the triage area but just those little things that come into play with the people that are experienced enough to know that hey this doesn't this isn't shooting a b and c this is uh you know this is the volume of uh it's a massacre you know and um so a lot of people really acted outside of uh, you know what would be expected to be dictated by the book and you know sometimes you know that's where your training kicks in but then there's you know the circumstance that it's you three other guys and there's a whole lot of people hurt yeah you know so we treat a lot of people and uh you know the gal that worked at 7-eleven across the street um i walked over there james about uh, an hour into it maybe an hour half when we were still doing volumes of uh, stabilizing patients and transporting or whatever and i walked in there and uh, there was just a brief brief lull and I walked in there and I said, hey, is the supervisor here? She said, no. I said, look, I need, I need a couple cases of water. Can I pay you later? She said, just take them. So I grabbed these two cases of water and walked over where everybody was at and started issuing out a bottle of water to everybody to, you know, take a shot and just, you know, decompress for a second. But, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't doubt that after all this time, she's still working here. She had been there for 10 years. But, you know, you forget you have this little bond with her when you walk over there late at night from Station 5 to go, you know, get get some M&Ms or something because you got a sweet tooth late at night and you're saying, oh, man, I, I got to go over there and get a candy bar or something and sit there and talk to her and say, you know, 
I really, and it took me a while to say to her, you know, I, I really appreciate the fact that you made that decision to give us two cases of water that night because we really, we really needed it. You know, I mean, Orange County's uh, rehab wasn't there yet, you know, and so it was, it was more on the front end uh, of it. Just little things like that. Yeah. You know? Well, I know another thing that Maria and Ryan talked about was on that scene, everyone was working together. And, you know, we all know that the actual organizations sometimes have, have butted heads, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's, you know, county and city, whether it's PD and, and fire. Yeah. But when the shit hit the fan, all the boots on the ground were working cohesively. And I think that's a, you know, a huge takeaway from this is I've stood on Pine Lock. On, and I've, I told this story with them too because it's kind of cool to tie it in with you on the corner of Pine Lock and Orange there's that tra- old trailer park they've knocked down now and there was a transformer fire and I was on the rescue so we didn't have any suppression equipment at all um, and so I was calling into our dispatch Orange County saying hey you know, we've got this transformer fire we need utilities we need a, an engine you know, because otherwise this thing's going to go up it was all densely populated trees and, and trailers and they were arguing with me oh I think that's Orlando's I'm like, I don't give a shit who you think it is. Just send the low, you know, I think Orlando will be best. I can see their station. Send them. That's fine. But it's in Orange County's territory, just so you know. And that, that was the thing. It's like there shouldn't be, I shouldn't have to explain when when there's a trailer park about to be on fire, you know, but but that's that's what you see from a kind of organizational point sometimes. And it shows that scene underlined how important it is for those I agencies if to I was communicate. The one to put that trailer out there, man. I don't know. We had a couple different fires in there, but uh, it wasn't the trailer never <clears> caught fire. Luckily, okay. it stayed in the transformer. There were palm trees and stuff around, but they ended up sending. I can't remember if it was you guys or if it was fifty, but um, we did end up getting a rig in the end. It was, yeah, it's called hidden something in there. I forget it, but it was a real. Uh, it was a really rough uh, trip. <laughs> it was terrible. I say a lot, a lot of heroin in there, as they say, a lot of heroin in there. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I hate to be that guy that's like identified. But when you go on CNN, man, oh, man, you do a seven minute interview on CNN. You hear from people you haven't heard from since high school. And suddenly, you know, my phone blew up again. Wow. And then my wife, I just saw your husband on CNN. You know, I can't believe. Well, what I was trying to say is that. Hey, you know what? You live here. You're really fortunate to have this world-class, basically, fire service to be able to provide this massive mass casualty situation. And oh, by the way, you're four blocks from a level one trauma center. So um, if it had been Disney Springs... Oh, man, you, know, you think about the transport time there and getting people back and forth because they were throwing people in the back of pickup trucks. And, you know, um, I just have this, you know, these flashes of remembering, you know, OPD and in, in, in one of their pickup trucks going back and forth with people that are hurt in the back and dumping them off down at RMC, you know, hey, any port in a storm, you know, at that point, you got a leg wound, you got shot through the arm, like, hop in the back of the pickup truck or hike four blocks down if you want to, if you could. But so those chaotic first moments and, you know, I, I can truthfully say I've never, I don't think I've ever had a nightmare associated with it because I think that I felt I was so proud of the job that was done there that I don't, you know, if, if you know, when things go bad on a scene, you know, when you've got a bad scene, 
and it haunts you no matter what. Uh, you know, if you're a conscientious supervisor, it, it haunts you because it it's your operation that's being judged and graded. And when you move up to the position of lieutenant, you know, you are moved away from the guys and all the grab ass in the bunk room and all the fun stuff. So you have to take your satisfaction from the scene being run well as well as, you know, uh, your guys perform as the hound. But um, ultimately, um, you know, that's how you have to get your job satisfaction as a, a, a lieutenant or a supervisor is that, hey, your guys did a good job and recognized for the fact that, hey, your crew had its feces in sequence. So that's all we ever ask, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, with the um, with the scene, another thing that um, Ryan and Maria talked about was, like you said, that initially, you know, you staged in place because, I mean, you were in a hot zone. Um, but there was that certain point where you felt comfortable opening the bay doors, but you're still working around a scene that was completely... Um, Chaos. Chaotic, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, volatile. Um, and you didn't know where they were, you know, if no. they were going to come out. There was rumors. How many of there were? Secondary devices, all these things. All that. So how, you know, how did your decisions, um, what was your decision process as far as risk mitigation and be able to facilitate saves but still kind of minor, minoritize, what's the word? Uh, minimize the potential risks for your crew. You know, that's a good question because once we had the one OPD officer out there with his AR, and I mean, he was in a combat firing position because I didn't know if they were going to run right around the corner of the station. You know, it sounded as if, you know, that there was multiple shooters and there were at one time because the OPD officer exchanged fire with him. And that may have given a heightened increased sense of uh, the volume of gunfire, meaning, hey, man, it. That that's just not just one. That's not a pistol. I'm hearing that. That's a long gun. Kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And this guy was just firing and walking around and just executing people. He's massacring people in there. And you're like, oh hell no. Uh, this uh, this thing is something's not right. But because of the volume of the LEO they got there, you know. And like I said, when I asked him twice, you got us covered. I meant you got us covered, pal, because. We don't know what's coming around the corner of the firehouse. You know, is it going to be a, a wave of uh, fanatics, uh, some madmen in the name of their religion or some whatever was going on? We couldn't figure it out at the time that it was a, a terrorist act. I didn't think that right then. Just like when the first plane hit the Twin Towers, you know, not everybody said, oh, that's this. We're at war. It's a terrorist act. You know? an accident. Like, to me, I was like, man, this isn't a shooting unlike any shooting that I've been involved with. And, you know, had a lot of. I've seen every possible seemingly, uh, you know, configuration of people shot, but this was on another scale. So my thought was, is that, hey, man, we got at some point, we got to do our job. And uh, that point came as soon as I saw that AR-15 out there. And then there was soon another officer backing him up. They were back to back. That's how you know, right on the bay, right out on the tarmac of your station, you got cops that are back to back with rifles, you know, expecting anything to happen. And all right, let's go, boys. We're going to work. Well, that shows as well the the confusion. Like if they're back to back, obviously, they're not even sure which direction these people are going to come from. Because.
because of the volume of people that were running and hiding, you don't know where the bad guys were. It turned out to be bad guy, but you know, OPD, when they get on the scene, they don't know who the good guy, bad guy is until they can figure it out, you know, or any officer, law officer, sheriff or whoever, when they get on the scene, they got to figure out who, who's the, you know, who's the bad guy and who's the good guy. Until then, they treat everybody as the bad guy. And that's why I think they were in their combat firing positions. But, you know, it was a different situation from Vegas. These guys are out there working an event and the gunfire comes down and they're in the gunfire. You know, they're in it. These guys out there, they're under fire. They're taking rounds. They're out there protecting people, covering people. You know, those guys, those guys are giants, man. Those guys in Vegas, that shooting, uh, you know, that was a different, again, another animal on another level where these guys are caught in the open. They can't, you know, they didn't, they didn't have a fire station wall protecting them. We still don't even know what the motive was for that one, do we? May never. I mean, just a total madman times three. But, you know, I guess now. You're carrying hundreds of pounds worth of uh, luggage into the hotel. They're probably going to throw a flag on you. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> Same way as if you're trying to get a box cutter into an airport these days. Yes, indeedy. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, I don't know how long your show is, James, but you're going to have to edit this thing for uh, people to be falling asleep by this point. No, no, quite the opposite. <laughs> and it's funny because, uh, you know, they, they tend to go longer, but, you know, that's how you get a, a true story out. You know, you don't have a little five-minute segment on Fox or CNN. You just get the... The, you know, the cliff notes which is usually misleading at best so um but just staying with it for a moment so they talked about the lull you had that big spate of shooting you know two to whatever it was 225 and then there was a you know, like a stalemate and then um you had the the breaching so what was you know what was it like because they, they were talking maria and uh, ryan were talking about it was kind of like weird like from pandemonium to hurry up and wait and then an explosion where they were saying we've been warned of bombs and this bomb goes off we weren't told they were breaching so what was it like through OFD5's eyes well a lot of people didn't realize that 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 was the case I mean uh, there were some um, command issues between FD and PD and I'm very optimistic that they've worked on those things since then i've I've got to believe it but there were some significant issues between uh police's command and fire department's command and whether or not we had enough people on their on their bus to know that when they're getting ready to blow it and um you know they'd moved us back a block or something like that but uh you know everybody knew when they blew it and then they breached um, you know, it didn't go the first time exactly right. And then, um, and then I guess they drove a truck and busted through the wall and went in there and engaged him. Um, there was a show on, on one of the, um, pay for, you know, like HBO or show, showtime or something. There was a show on where they, it was about shootings and one of them was the Pulse. So I sat there in the chair watching this thing play out in real time with all the background recordings and everything. And then that night, sitting there at Station 5 in the chair telling the guys that, yeah, that, that that's that's how that happened. And then listening to 
the last crescendo of volume of fire that took him out to the T. I remembered exactly how it just, you know, I mean, they, they probably fired well over a hundred rounds. I mean, it was just, a, you know, you thought it was firecrackers going off on, but they, they literally, they, they lit this guy up. And, um, you know, once I heard it again on that show on there, I was like, man, that was just exactly how I remembered it. You know, it was, it was weird. But to be able to sit there with three other guys, I was working on another shift that day. And, you know, they're like, man, you want to watch this tonight? I go, yeah, okay. It's been been a year and a half, two years, you know. I'm, uh, maybe it was closer to three. But I sat there and watched it and said, yeah, that, that's pretty accurate. But it's hard to listen to people on their phones and they're saying, come and get me out. I'm dying. You know, you, you knew then that while you were out there in that lull, they're in there bleeding out in that bathroom with that crazy man. Well, that's uh, one of the haunting stories I heard closer to the time. I haven't heard it recently, but was the, you know, the PD, FD, whoever was going in post-incident, that it was the the phones just chirping, all the loved ones trying. I am glad that I did not have to have that burned into my psyche. That would have been something that... You know, to be in there and hear all these phones chirping and beeping, yeah, you would be like, man. Yeah. Yeah. That, I can see that messing with some people. I can see that messing with some people, but for the most part, uh, you know, I think we cataloged it and put it in that sack of old dreams and nightmares in your brain where that stuff you bury until, you know, something brings it forward. But unless it's an ongoing issue causing you, uh, you know, to be a debilitating situation, you know, um, then that's a different story. That That's how I've always coped with everything that I've seen in 38 years. You know, the, the most cruel inhumanity to man, a mother, you know, I've seen mothers that's killed their children. You know, you can't, you can't rationalize that. And so, you know, when you're a young fireman, oh, you're a fireman? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's the worst thing you ever you ever saw well yeah but we had this guy on a motorcycle and he got decapitated you know you're a young fireman you're telling telling what you did and you're just trying to get that shock factor but after a period of time and you've done it for a while you know people would say hey uh what's the worst thing you ever saw well you don't want to know the worst thing i ever saw yeah i, I don't so like, many to choose from i don't too. like conjuring that <laughs> image up in my head because it's buried in there mm-hmm. with old nightmares and bad dreams where i don't like to go so my paycheck that's the worst thing i've seen in a long time yeah. <laughs> so that's a good one but uh you know there's a difference between the young brash firemen coming into the fire service wow we had this happen and you know can you believe that you know it's like well, son, after a few years, you'll be jaded enough to know that it can happen. It can, people can get turned inside out, you know, whatever the case may be. But, you know, you had that bond with those people, too. Those guys that went through that with me now, um, I hold them in the highest uh, regard. And as far as how they conducted themselves at night, they never wavered. They never blanched. They followed my directives. They didn't question me. And, you know, again, like I say, that, that's all you can ask from your troops is that they, uh, you know, buy into what you're selling. They believe that you've got their best interest in heart. They'll follow you through the gates of hell, you know, whatever whatever that definition of gates of hell is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important to have good leaders that walk the walk in the fire service because you can't 
have people second guessing on scene, you know, and when it comes to, you know, when it's go time, I, I love those captains or lieutenants, depending on if it's east or west coast, because. And, and we, my driver that night just made lieutenant like last week. So I drove over to see him at station three and I got a picture of him and me together. He's holding his new red helmet, you know, and I was like, man, you're, you're going to do well, Nikki. You're going to be fine. You, 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 you've been in the fire service long enough. You've had some, you've had some good role models and leaders to, to, to do it. But I said, you know, there's going to be some challenges and stuff. And you, for you, like I did, you call somebody that you think you might know that has the answer. Don't ever be afraid to say, hey, what did you do in this situation? Or how did you handle this? Because I did that all the time. A lot of times it was administratively because I was, you know, an inept administrator. But I had uh, quite a bit of combat experience. And so um, I still would ask. And these young leaders are going to be challenged by older firemen. Hey, they're going to be saying, hey, boy, lieutenant, what, what do you think? You know, what do you know? You know, so I said, you're going to have to handle these older guys with. Hey, you know, you might have to ask them instead of order them to do something, you know. It always works better to say, you think you could squeeze some cleanup into your busy schedule? It's like 9.30 in the morning. We got to get going and doing company inspections. So I said, they're going to they're gonna push back on you and be as lazy as you'll let them be. But ultimately, how you, mani- how you manage that. And that's the whole thing about the job is, um, you know, I always greeted the new hires you know, with the fact that um, how many are ex-military? Great. You know why ex-military are the best firemen? Oh, they do this or they know that. No, because they know how to clean the shitters. You know, they got a world-class education from their Uncle Sam on how to clean. And this job's about sometimes 60% custodial. And I said, if you can't go in and do a good job in the bathroom and come out of there and say that thing is squared away, then I got questions about how you're going to perform. It's not all about how you were out there on the fire scene and heroically stretched the line and opened the, uh, the knob up and put the fire out. I, I, you know, that's great. But it's how you conduct yourself professionally in all aspects of your duties is going to define you as that fireman. And I stick to that, too. You know, that, hey, this is jobs. You're the highest. I'd always say you're the highest paid custodians in Central Florida that place better be sparkling in there you know and that wasn't just busting her balls but i was just you know saying hey man it's about the pride you have whether you're riding orange county rescue 51 or whether you're on brevard engine company 24 or you're on tower one city of orlando or fill in the blank you know your your unit is the pride of the fleet you know you take that type of attitude absolutely confidence and the firehouse is your home for 24 hours and it's, you know, I appreciate confident firemen, not arrogant, but I appreciate confident firemen. Well, speaking of that, so that's a great segue. We spoke just over a year ago at the Orlando Fire Conference. I think that's a good place to find some competent firefighters that are going above and beyond and putting themselves through some pretty awesome training. Best. Um, but you, you know, your topic of conversation, I think, has you just retired or about to retire? I think I had about a week and a half left. Yeah, I know it was right the uniform. there. <laughs> so, but you spoke about mental health, and obviously, you know, you guys lost Matt Negley, and you know, I mean, we've lost so many people in this area, and it just seems to be getting worse and worse at the moment. But you were, you know, you spoke with all the years of, of experience and all the kind of operational combat stories you could have come up with. You spoke about, you know, mental health. What 
What were the kind of ripple effects that you saw from the Orlando men and women post Pulse? And then post your entire career, you know, speak to us about your philosophy on, on mental health in our profession. You know, that's a good question because um, I felt that through the next few weeks post Pulse, those were probably the most important for me as a supervisor to ensure that nobody a immediately became unraveled keep their nose to the ground as far as their specific duties and don't get caught up on this worldwide although it's happening right out the window you're watching it right out the window of the station the whole massive undertaking of processing this huge crime scene and everything that wanted to go down with it people were showing up from all over the country and people were coming in to tell their stories and you know, they were survivor groups of other people who had lost people. And you, you you have to listen to them because they came in the firehouse with whether they had, uh, you know, rescue dogs or rescue ponies. You know, I mean, it truly became a dog and pony show there for a while. And we had all these petting animals come through. But the main thing for the supervisor, from my point of view, was to keep an eye on the guys to make sure nobody was coming off the tracks. And, I mean, you had uh, teams that came in from Boston. Uh, you had teams that came in from New York. To the uh, international's credit, you know, they brought these teams in immediately and post, um, you know, uh, evaluated, de-stressed, uh, whatever the case may be, but laid out, hey, this is what's going to happen. And the most telling story I heard were the guys that from New York – say that, you know, after 9-11, uh, it was about 15 years, and then we started having senior management come in. I don't know if you've heard this, but their teams heard more from the mental health, health aspects from the senior management guys 15 years after. And I was like, wow, that, those are some long-term effects. And I would think on an epic scale of 9-11 uh, and uh, the loss of uh, 343 men, um, not to mention thousands of civilians, um, I can only imagine how that bore on them, you know, as far as where it wore on them. But for me, after the first few weeks, um, you know, there was a point in time where ultimately other factors were starting to play in and feed off of what, what had taken place there when people weren't listening to some of the firemen who were, uh, I won't use the words uh, asking for help because there was help to be had, but um, there were other issues that were getting uh, blurred. And, um, you know, if you're an active participant in a, and um, you're hearing one thing and some people are saying others and you're contradicting them, um, you know, some of the guys literally took issues that they had that were bothering them and you know, took it up the chain of command, all the way up the chain of command. And if they didn't feel that they had gotten resolution there, well, uh, suddenly, uh, you know, a, a letter wound up in the media explaining the frustration from certain aspects. And I, I get that, you know, it could be an unrelated issue, but because of this uh, built up um, angst from the situation, you know, it spills over, so you got to kind of watch them. And then, um, wow, hey, uh, you know, get out to UCF, you know, get out there. I don't know if they'd have named it Restorers yet, uh, if that was the, the official name for their counseling out there. But um, a lot of guys, and I say a lot of guys, 
whether it was Pulse related or not, have gotten some significant, uh, you know, help from going out there and talking to these people. So it's uh, if if it's if it's that thing you're carrying around with you and you can't shake it, I would say that it would be a good idea to go talk to some people. You know, I mean, it just depends. You know, I don't. You know, I've spoken myself on several occasions to the counselors out there, but, you know, I just, um, I guess I've just been so focused for so long on uh, my role as the supervisor and as a lieutenant that, you know, I felt it, it was far more critical in the weeks and months afterwards to make sure the guy stayed busy, understood, uh, you know, what was going on to the best of their ability and training, you know, let's go, let's go hook up to a plug and flow some water, you know, let's go, let's go make some foam, which now I heard that foam's kind of carcinogens. Oh my God. I was, (laughs) I was uh, such an advocate of our onboard foam system. I I love them too. I trained and trained with it. I had all these scenarios for foam and, Oh my gosh! And I'm like, well, I guess that just increased and multiplied my um, my risk factor because I am from the school now. At 63, I retired at 62. Then it's it's a matter of uh, not if, but when. When you know when's my number coming up? You know I won't be surprised. I, I don't want it to happen because I got 11 and 13 year old. But uh, at some point, you start to think that man, all these people. You know, we just ate carcinogens for 38 years. We, meaning anybody who's, I don't want to say foolish enough to stay on the job that long, but uh, that stays on the job and loves it. Uh, really, it's caused some reevaluation to how long do I really want to work? You know, I mean, we're fortunate enough to have a pension. If you put some money away like you should, um, you know, it's, it's not. It's not imperative that you work to the last iota of your existence to, to um, you know, 10 years of the just at station five of the discharge of the um, exhaust off engine five going into the ice maker. I yeah, mean, <laughs> it's you know, crazy I, when we look I, back now. Yeah, we had the Plymo vent, but sometimes somebody would be too lazy to put the Plymo vent on and the engineers out there charging up the battery after he fueled it or something. I'm going out there and I'm saying, man, you're killing us. It's exhausting straight into the ice maker, which has been there for as long as I was, 10 years on that spot on the bay floor. So we were killing ourselves, James. I mean, killing ourselves. I go back before we washed bunker gear. I I go back before Nomex hoods, and now Nomex hoods are getting us sick, you know, and leather radio straps. And these – these face teams, these, this national campaign for firefighters attacking cancer, I believe is the acronym. They're going to bear fruit. I mean, I'm, I'm watching it from the, I'm going to Friday's meeting with Orlando as a retiree and to sit in. I'm so impressed with these kids on the research they're doing down to the chemicals A, B, and C and everything they found out about foam and, uh, you know, this type of hood and this kind of hood and we're no longer wearing leather you know, radio straps, and we're killing ourselves, man. Yeah. Well, the shift's another thing, too. The sleep deprivation is the other side of the coin, which, you know, I, I'm i trying to put, you know, make that part of that conversation because if we're not resilient to these carcinogens, then we're going to fall prey to them. 
And, you know, a lot of us were old school, especially the supervisors. I would never go to bed before two or three in the morning because I always thought there's going to be one more call. And I usually be, is. <laughs> I, yeah. I wanted to be awake so I wasn't, you know, out there stumbling and bumbling, especially if it was, you know, a high profile situation, i.e. a fire or something like that. But, um, you know, I always stayed up late thinking there was you know and I'd, i would finally fall asleep about two thirty or 3 and then go home and drag ass the next day and do whatever you had to do and then try to get your pattern back the next night but you know it just depends on if you sleep too much during the day then you're up all night you know so you got to be careful with that these guys that like to you know doze during the day um you know you don't want to be sitting up all night yeah well that's why you mentioned fdmy being the pinnacle i think that that's that's just it they, a lot of the Northeast does 42-hour work weeks, 24-72. I think that should be a standard nationwide. I'm sure it would be embraced by the troops. I'm sure it would be. Um, you might lose a Kelly Day thing in there, but, boy, what a work schedule that would be. Absolutely. And then, you know, it's funny because it's not a unicorn fighting rainbows. It's the same as a regular civilians, you know. I mean, it's a 40-plus-hour 40, 40 work week, so it's not like you're asking, you know, for 20. But if we're going to attack carcinogens and clean cab concepts and talk about AFFF, we sure as hell need to be talking about the work week because that you ask anyone in sleep medicine, it's not even contested. It's a known fact that it kills us long-term and acutely it destroys our cognition as well you know i think uh, our average at station five was around seven or eight calls a day which is not bad but then we had our 15 and 18 call days and then sometimes on the weekend when the doctor's offices aren't being staffed we'd have two and three call days you know it was funny because station five had all the hospitals and all the doctor's offices so we we're running constantly to transport somebody's got AFib or something like that from somebody's cardiologist across the street literally yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly i mean 1222 south orange avenue i mean how many times did we transport right across the street into the er but that being said you know um there are you know units out there that are adding 12 and 15 calls and you're not that isn't all just during the day that isn't just uh, seven to five you know that's it's spread out so but, you know, I, I think I've said this to you. If somebody said at my young age, hey, man, it's going to cut your life short doing this job. I probably wouldn't have said, well, oh, screw that. I don't, I don't want to do this. Because once you're into it and you begin to love what you're doing and, and thrive upon it, you know, if somebody had told me at 28, hey, you're going to be dead at 68, I would have said, well, yeah, sucks to be 68. You know, that would have been, <laughs> been my patented dick. Uh, explicit thought at that time but now i'm five years from 68 i'm like hey man i'm looking at my watch like man better make that doctor's appointment better get that double screening better get that uh you know everything from stem to stern top to bottom absolutely all right well i need to round this up so i can let you get back to your family um i normally have a bunch of closing questions but i'm gonna ask you just one i brought you my book you said you're an avid reader so um is there a book that you love to recommend to other people that can be related to what we've discussed or something completely different, fiction, anything at all? Man, uh, I read a really good fire service book not too long before I left, and it was it was written by, um, I think it was FDNY, one of the guys in FDNY, and it was so, it was so true, it was so good. Um, of course, it's probably in my book collection somewhere, but I just have so many uh, titles floating through my head you know of, of real people doing real real 
jobs that, um, you know, I, I wish I could call it up. But that's the other thing. In five years from now, I probably won't know who I am. It only gets harder and harder, <laughs> man. I mean, but um, – Hey, they can wait a couple more minutes if you got a question. But uh, okay, um, well, the, the other one. So there's the book. Um, is there a, a movie you love or a documentary? Mm, man, that's a good story. Yeah, you know, I I tend to watch movies with human interest stories. You know, I watched that movie um, recently about the uh, security guard up in Atlanta during the Olympic bombing. And what the media did to him, and uh, it was really well done. I love those kind of stories. Um, I forget; it, I think it was a Clint Eastwood movie too. But um, it was the guy's name was the title of the movie. Yeah, I, I've forgotten he, what it is, but yeah, I'll, I'll write yeah, it down. Yeah, but it was a good one because it was like, wow, you really see how just uh, people can be destroyed uh, through the media or a simple uh, slip of the. FBI's tongue, but that was the last one I saw that, that really grabbed me. And uh, trust me, when we have movie night here, I get voted out <laughs> every time. But fortunately, at 11 and 13, as world's oldest dad, I still like the fact that they're watching kids' movies. You know, they yes, haven't, they haven't crossed over yet to uh, the dark side of uh, you know R-rated movies and that kind of thing. You know. Absolutely. I got a 12 year old. I mean, a 13 year old, excuse me, so I can relate completely. I'm still having to pull on the reins. Um, all right. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military in the world? Man. Wow. Um, you know, there's a few of the old timers out there left. Uh, um, you know, the great Orlando aviator, Joe Kittinger, uh, Colonel Joe, he lives up in Aldemont. Boy, bar none, uh, that man has led a life of uh, extreme, um, you know, fighter pilot, shot down POW in Vietnam and Hanoi Hilton, held the parachute record for 103,000 feet for 40-something years until the Red Bull team beat him. But, man, uh, he's still as sharp as can be, and he's up in his 80s, but uh, I could get you his contact number and... Um, you know, I don't know that during this high risk time that he's going to be uh, hip to, uh, you know, um, a visitor. I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, I just look up at the old timers, you know, the, you know, my lieutenants that I had, you know, um, gosh, you know, they, they're giants, man. Lou Longest, Joe Cirillo, man, those guys, you know, they're, they're still kicking. Uh, one of them's battling cancer pretty bad. But, you know, just uh, those guys, I look at them like we walk in their footsteps. We walk in the shadow of these guys that taught us the job, that taught us how to conduct ourselves with, uh, uh, with honor and be righteous. Those are, those are my guys. But, you know, I would also recommend uh, for uh, gender. I don't know if um, Walt asked you, but uh, Don uh, Sumter for our department, you know, made pretty good rank, uh, went through some real trying times. But if I had to issue a role model for a female and her conduct in the fire service, and I've told many a gal that's come in, you need to go and talk to Don and have her 
mentor you as being a female in an all-male testosterone-laden environment because once you jump down in that ditch in that sewer with the boys, you can't just come right back out and say, oh, no, you can't say that now because you were in there telling stories just like so you ought to get some female perspective on this too. But Dawn Sumter, she's a assistant chief with Orlando and probably could have been deputy and perhaps should have been chief. But she's super, super smart gal. Brilliant. I will put her on the list as well. Thank oh, you. Oh, absolutely. It's funny you say testosterone late. And actually, because um, of the sleep deprivation, our testosterone's in the toilet. Most male firefighters. So if only it was testosterone late. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I went through that and did that, you know, with my doctor and had the shots. But it started giving me real bad headaches or side side effects. And I was like, uh, I don't need it that bad. No. Well, sleep. Sleep is how you reverse it. And now you're retired. You're probably more. Well, a lot of people are using the CPAPs, you know, and how many guys, you know, that are hooking up to, you know, a mask at night. And it's hard to sleep with a mask on, but some, a lot of guys doing it. And it's giving them, you know, waking up in the morning like, hey, I, I kind of feel refreshed and robust. See, my, my thing is this, you, you and I've talked about this all the time. You look at the diamond, the grinder of a orientation of a new hire. That's a very resilient, you know, man or woman, mentally, physically, skill-wise. And then fast forward 10, 15 years, and the bunk room looks like Star Wars with all these CPAPs, and you know, these guys are testosterone like an eight-year-old woman. My hope is that we can create an environment where our responders can, you know, thrive, and they're not dying of cancer. You know, at the end of their, their yeah, career. I hope I beat the odds. I really do, and you know, I'll finish it up by that story from that next morning at the Pulse. And I told the Miami Herald this, and if you Google my name or whatever, and that Miami Herald story comes up, that was the best written article, first person interview that I did. And I did a couple just because I was there and I was the person to go to. But that Miami Herald story is online. But the fact was that I had promised those kids that I would take them for a bike ride that next morning. And when I left out of that station and drove out and got around the police cordon, got home, it's like, Daddy, we going? Yeah. Well, guess what? That was the best bicycle ride of my life, man. Despite whatever I had just been and seen, and as tired as I was, fueled by a couple of cups of some brown black <laughs> sea out of the firehouse, man, black sea. Uh, we rode all the way down around Winter Park and back home before Daddy had to go to bed, so. It's a good way to finish, isn't it?